Welcome to Chain Reaction, the Foreign Policy Research Institute's flagship network of podcast series examining the political, security, economic, and social trends shaping Europe and Eurasia. Throughout the year, we're talking with experts about developments in Russia's war in Ukraine, the new European security order, the past, present, and future of the Baltic states, Russia's political economy, and great power competition in the region. Join us each month for Bear Market Brief, the understanding of, of Russia, which is broadly as Russia is a great power that has its own special path, that has a mission and that needs a strong state, you know, and, and a different path to that of the West. I think when you look at these other industries, what you find is that there's a lot of pain built up uh, in, in different parts of the Russian economy. Some of it's only to be felt over a longer period of time. Baltic ways. There were other countries that when the war started, they were willing to be, you know, those uh, voices of uh, moral conscience. The continent. I think that this conflict today proves that we are able to go past grievances and that we are able to look into the future, into the common future together. Report in short. This is the real Achilles heel of Putin's mobilization. And of course, our flagship chain reaction. These two countries are interacting militarily or have been interacting in several different conflicts. And in some cases, they're on the same side. And in some cases, they're not. New episodes are available each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on the Bear Market Brief. Here on the Bear Market Brief podcast, and also over on the continent, we've spent a fair bit of time investigating the political, social, economic, and security implications of the war in Ukraine, both in Europe, Eurasia, and beyond. But you know what country we haven't actually stopped by and visited in detail in a long time? It's the country most affected by the war in Ukraine, Ukraine itself. Welcome to another episode of the Bear Market Brief. I'm your host, Aaron Schwartzbaum. On today's docket, the key of dispatch, we're going to revisit Ukraine and catch up on some of the latest political and social dynamics we've seen. It's been an interesting summer, to say the very least. We've seen Ukrainian society begin to come to grips with the realities of a protracted war and the difficulties of the counteroffensive. We've also started to see what may be the beginnings of a thaw in Ukrainians' party politics, formerly very contentious. And perhaps most importantly, we're going to hear about, well, how people are doing these days. Joining us this episode is a friend of the Bear Market Brief podcast and a friend of the Bear Market Brief newsletter, Fabrice Deprez. Fabrice is currently reporting for La Croix in Kiev, but he also has two newsletters of his own that he'll talk about during the episode. I'm including links to each in the episode description, so be sure to check them out. Let's get into our conversation. Fabrice, great to have you back. So it's been a little while since you joined the Bear Market Brief podcast. Catch us up a little bit. Where are you? Where have you been since the war started? What keeps you busy these days? Uh, hi there, Aaron. Uh, great, great to be back. It has been uh, it has been a little while. So right now I'm in uh, I'm in Ukraine, uh, in Kiev. I just uh, I just got back after a few weeks of uh, vacation back in France. I've been so covering the the war pretty much since uh, since the beginning. I was first when the war started. I was working for the international department of a French newspaper, La Croix, and so I covered that in that capacity for the first three weeks of the war. And then I came back starting in August of last year as a full time correspondent uh, in Kiev, which was my uh, my old job that 
was doing before before the Russian invasion. And uh, yes, yeah, since then I've been uh, pretty much living in uh, in Ukraine full time. You know, covering covering of course the the war in the, the military sense, but more more in general how how that war is transforming Ukraine, which obviously is uh, transforming in a huge capacity. So let's start with our first question. I want this episode to really focus on anecdotes and kind of a slice of life now about what's happening in Ukraine. So how is life in Kiev broadly these days? On one hand, we see uh, often propagandized by Russian media footage of you know people out at bars. On the other hand, I know there are still airstrikes and work with Ukrainians who sometimes turn up to meetings kind of bleary-eyed and tired. What is going on when you when you leave your residence in the morning? What do you see on the streets? How are people doing? You know, it's interesting because actually, the when I got back to Kiev on uh, on Friday last week, so after a few weeks out of uh, out of Ukraine, one of the very first things I saw in the morning was a group of kids, you know, some young and some like teenagers, but also small kids, like maybe 40, 40 or even fifty of them, just like. Walking, walking in the street, like happily laughing, having fun, talking, looking at the smartphone, and just like walking at a brisk pace. Uh, and it did take me a few seconds to realize that they were actually going to the bomb shelter because there had just been an, an area alarm. And so I'm guessing the school itself didn't have a bomb shelter, so they go out of the, sco- of the school, they cross a few streets. Maybe they were going to the the nearby uh, metro station, and you know they were used to it, so there was no there was no panic. There were the kids were were laughing, were talking, like business as usual, which I think is fairly representative of life in Kiev at the time, where, you know, if you get dropped in a street of Kiev in the middle of the day when there is no alarm, and if you were not aware that there is a war going on, you could not know about it. You could have, you could see perfectly normal life, restaurants walking, bars walking. Yeah, very, very normal life. And at the same time, I would say that, especially because first because of the, the general you know, the general war situation, but also because Kiev is pretty regularly targeted uh, by Russian missiles and Russian drones, you have this sort of constant low-level anxiety that people feel maybe not to the point where it's this sort of background noise where you, you don't really realize it's there until until for example you leave ukraine but it is there even you know even when it's about making decisions like ignoring arid alarms which lots of people do now lots of people don't want to, to bother with going to the shelter every time so they just ignore it but even making that decision is sort of an anxious decision as well and uh it's particularly strong, of course, when you have kids, you know, when uh, you're sending your kids to the kindergarten, to school, uh, when you're dealing with arid alarm in, in the night. So that's that's the way I think I could describe it best, this, you know, normal life most of the time, honestly, with this constant anxiety and, of course, those moments when you have actual airstrikes, you know, actual uh, missiles being shot down above the skies, which is when you can hear it most clearly when you have an Ukrainian air defense that blows up a missile in the sky. That's when it's the most bright when it comes to the sound. Yeah, it's a it's a bizarre mix that I can understand. People may have trouble understanding, but at the same time, you know, you talked about those propaganda footage. Yeah, people go to bars, people still party. Yeah, sure. Like, I'm not sure what uh, what people expect. You know, I'm, I'm guessing even in London during the Blitz, uh, people were were still trying to have fun and hopefully succeed at that time. So yeah, yeah, there is still there are still parties. There are still bars working well, which sort of serve to hide 
try to hide at least this anxiety that is now pretty constant. Let me ask you a much more boring and mundane question. But just since you brought it up, coming back from vacation, how do you even get into Ukraine these days? What does that trip look like? I know the airports are, are still closed, no? Uh, yeah, the, the airspace is still entirely closed. Um, you take the train. In, in my case, uh, I took it from, so I took a plane to Warsaw from Paris and then took uh, to the train to, to Kiev. That's, I would say that's the most common way. You can also enter through Moldova, or well, you can enter from any bordering country uh, of Ukraine, except, of course, uh, Belarus and Russia. But yeah, it's a, it's a long train trip. Uh, you, can, you can also go by car. Usually, if you take the car or the bus, you're going to have much longer wait lines at the border because there is lots of traffic at the border. So the, the train is usually the, the easiest, fastest, and most comfortable way. But yeah, now it's a, it's a situation where entering or leaving Ukraine is not something you, you do just like that. You know, it's not the, the three-hour Paris-Kiev uh, plane that used to be. Uh, now it's a, it's a full day, maybe sometimes even more uh, trip. So let's pivot back to the on-the-ground situation, your interactions with some of your interlocutors, uh, people you're speaking with on the regular. We see certainly in the poll data that there's pretty broad support for the war, for continuing. But what are people you talk to saying? How do, how do your average Ukrainians kind of view the war? What is this about? What are the stakes? And then as a follow-up question, I know the counteroffensive has been difficult, uh, costly. Has that changed anything about the way Ukrainians feel? So I think it's a, it's a difficult question because, you know, there is, there is this idea that for all Ukrainians, for example, you know, the idea of the war stopping without a complete Ukraine victory is absolutely unthinkable, that there is no negotiation that is possible at all. And I don't necessarily think that is true. But the thing is, there is a huge level of uncertainty. And I think that's the main thing when you, when you talk about support for the war and, you know, the idea of negotiation and everything. For most Ukrainians, it is seen as something unavoidable. You know, they, they don't see a way out. They don't see an exit. So it's not really like, do I support keep going with the war or do I support negotiation? It's more like, well... Obviously, I don't enjoy, you know, my country being at war. Obviously, I would like this to stop, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. So we're trying to, to make things work as well as possible. You know, the, the society, I think, is under very strong tension. Uh, society is exhausted. And if you wanted to look for sort of data points about that, you can very easily find it. Uh, there is... You know, there is tension about mobilization. There is economic tension. Country's economic situation is not good at all, to, to say the least. There is very, very strong difficulties. At the same time, I still see uh, strong resilience. I still see networks of support that have been, yeah, still very active, still very strong. And yeah, I think most of all is really this idea of what are we going to do? Anyway, like it's not, uh, it's not, it's not really seen as a choice, which begs the question: if some kind of choice started being proposed, you know, in some kind of negotiation, then how would society react? And that's that another question. But 
as of right now, as of right now, there is still still strong support for the way things are going right now. There is also, I think, for many, for many, still the idea that this is an existential fight, uh, and again, which feeds into this idea that we don't really have a choice. Makes sense. Now, turning to something you said in your response to that question, support networks. I remember speaking with folks uh, at the beginning of the war who talked about this feeling, especially when you know, Russia's army was parked outside Kiev, this feeling of solidarity and people looking out for each other early on. Has that continued? Has, has it settled into more of a, I guess, as you mentioned, normalcy? Is it state support networks? What do support networks look like day to day? What, a year and a half into the war now? Good question. It has, it has continued for sure. What I will say is that I think it has, yeah, you know, normalized and institutionalized in a sense where, for example, for for example, very basic example, on Saturday I went to a book festival, the Kiev Book Festival, and the fee, the entrance fee was entirely sent to uh, fund supporting the army. You know, basic stuff like that. Concert being organized were, were the same thing. The, the price of the ticket is going to the army. You know, that, that kind of thing has now become something very, very normal and basic. And you still have your networks of uh, volunteers who, you know, are going to bring equipment to the army, which are still active. On that front, though, I have, I have heard from some of the volunteers, especially, you know, you're going to have the very big organization that can raise literally millions of dollars and are the most visible, but you also have thousands of much, much smaller organization, you know, sometimes five, six people, 10 people who usually are going to deal in much smaller number, but usually help like some specific military units. And those guys told me that they're now having more trouble raising money because I don't think it's really a matter of like, you know, attention for the war going down, because if that is the case in the West, obviously it's not really the case in Ukraine. I think it more has to do with very basic economic issues where people cannot necessarily now afford to give on the level that they would give at the beginning of the war. You know, at the beginning you had many stories about people giving their entire savings to some organization supporting the army. You can only give your entire saving once, right? Once, once you've done it, you can't really do that again. So there, there is this issue of like maintaining support, especially for those smaller organizations. It definitely still, still exists. And it's definitely now being done, you know, with the long-term perspective. Let me ask uh, another question about support, but a different kind of support. So certainly lots of coverage about providing F-16s or not providing F-16s or the Attackums missile or cruise missiles or not or anti-aircraft and what are Western countries given? I think there's a lot of hay made, for lack of a better term, about kind of the inside baseball, the negotiations. But how do Ukrainians feel now about Western support, Western countries? What is the, the mood there? Good question. Uh, you know, I was talking just this morning to a Ukrainian uh, MP from Zelensky's party, and I asked him, I asked him this specifically whether there was some, you know, frustration about the the pace of uh, Western help, and especially, you know, this process of saying no, saying no, saying no, and then saying yes. He was very, he was very diplomatic, but but you know, there was this idea. Yeah, if we had gotten more earlier, maybe the counteroffensive would have gone differently. So that was, again, that was said very diplomatically, but, but it was said, and you can hear it in much less diplomatic manners elsewhere. So yeah, you have, you have some frustration with the, the pace of the support, 
you know, always mixed in with, we are very aware of the importance of that support and, you know, we are extremely thankful. But uh, the other thing uh, that I was told by, by this MP that I think is also very, very representative is the idea that, okay, now we sort of got almost everything we wanted. You know, there's still the question of the 16s and the, the long range uh, missiles, but that's pretty much the end of the list. Now it's all about continuous support and it's all about quantity. Like we need, we got a dozen armored vehicle. We need more like a hundred or even more. So there is this, I'd say, transition period where uh, it's not about ticking off the, the checklist. Uh, it's now about, you know, continuous, yeah, continuous uh, support. So while this is technically an episode of Bear Market Brief, we're going to borrow a couple of things from The Continent, which is my other podcast about how the war in Ukraine has impacted Europe. We haven't actually covered how the war in Ukraine has impacted Ukraine politically. So let's take a couple of kind of pages from The Continent's playbook here. Question one in that regard is about language. I love talking about language. Is there any slang or kind of words of the day in Russian or Ukrainian, but in Kiev that have kind of entered the vocabulary to describe the war or the social moments that you would you would like to highlight to the crowd? Um, that's that's a good question. You know, the obvious one is trivoga, which is used to talk about error alerts, which can also mean in general anxiety. So that's now a word that you hear very often and in very very various contexts. You know, it's a word that instead instead of talking about oh, there's been an error alarm and blah blah, you can just say trivoga, and that's that's the yeah, that's that's now something that was completely unknown uh, before before the war, and that is now that is now very very common. I certainly, think that's a, a relevant word. If I could share an anecdote, so I take Ukrainian lessons these days, and at one point my tutor played the sound of the siren just so I could hear. And she asked if I had heard that sound, what it means, and one of her kids burst into the room like, "Wait, are we okay? Do we have to take shelter?" And she's like, "No, no, it's just demonstrating." So this is definitely a, a word and a sound that I know. Ukrainians, broadly speaking, are, are very sensitive to kind of trains that reflex has yeah. been yeah, built you know, in. It's, it's one of those things, like, of course, all Ukrainians have not been exposed to the war on the same level. You know, if you're living on the front line, it's not the same if you are living in Western Ukraine, for example. But that, that sound of the, the aerial alarm is something that every single Ukrainian, wherever they are, have experience. So it's really, it's really probably the, the one entirely common experience for every single Ukraine living in, in Ukraine. So it's, it is very powerful. Yeah. Even now, when, when I think all Ukrainians have heard it hundreds, if not thousands of times. Well, I think so this is common. going to be one of the lasting kind of lasting impacts of the war is now all Ukrainians have a common shared experience. So I think that yeah, will have absolutely. interesting political implications. Speaking of um, I did some homework before recording with you today, and I was looking at our last appearance together here on Bear Market Brief before the war. We were talking, I believe, about local elections. At the time, I think Zelensky's approval rating was about 25%. Um, <laughs> the Servant of the People Party, his political party, I don't know if lost was the right word, but certainly had come down to earth and was being treated and viewed more like a regular old political party. So one of the things I've heard over the course of the war is that Ukraine's domestic politics, famously fractious. I used to watch lots of videos of fights in the Verkhovna Rada, Ukraine's parliament. 
But that Ukrainian politics are essentially on pause. Folks have rallied around the flag. Would you say that's true? And if not, what are we seeing debates around? So it was definitely true. Um, I think now, actually, we kind of are in an interesting sort of transition period in that area, because on the one hand, you still don't see and you still haven't seen any major sort of political debates where one political force would openly oppose either Zelensky or the government, like strongly, strongly oppose it. You still haven't seen that. So in that area, there is still still sort of a united front. On the other hand, something that I used to hear a lot uh, at the, the beginning of the Russian invasion in the first month and even in the first year, I'd say, when you asked anything kind of controversial about the, the political situation, you will always hear, we'll see about that after victory. Uh, you know, well, right now is not the moment to talk about that. We'll talk about that after victory. And that has sort of changed. I think the, the easiest example is corruption, which has sort of come back to being a topic, even leading to, to the dismissal of the defense minister, Alexei Rednikov. You can also see this more recently in the talk about doing elections in wartime, uh, which, you know, just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, was really not even not even a topic of discussion. It was considered completely ridiculous. I had a fairly high, former high-ranking uh, Ukrainian official who was also a pretty strong Zelensky opponent, who at the time told me, you know, right now, anyone who opposes Zelensky is a traitor. So it's not really like we, we don't even talk about that. And now it is a topic of discussion. People are still mostly opposed to it. So it's not like there are plans to do election, you know, in the coming month. But, but it is, it has become a topic of discussion. So, so yeah, it's kind of not, not as strongly united and closed as it was at the beginning. But there is still no, you know, no major opposition to, to Zelensky, who's still, still very much in charge. So you talked about this political pause, if you will. This uh, we'll talk about it after victory. I believe in Ukrainian pislia peremohi. If I'm not mis misspeaking, yeah. but that's a great segue to something you wrote about recently: coverage of what Ukrainians are writing about what society might look like after the war. So, before I ask you about that piece, you have, by my count, two newsletters about what's happening in Ukraine. You want to give a quick plug about what you write about, and I'll include a link to each in the episode description. Uh, yes, absolutely. Thanks for, for giving me the, the opportunity to do this. Uh, so yeah, I have two, two main news, uh, newsletters, one called The Long War, in which first I sort of give my, my insights about what's, what's going on in Ukraine, you know, from my perspective here in Ukraine, and also try to highlight some interesting stories that have been published either in lesser-known Western websites or on Ukrainian media, uh, try to give a, a recap of what's being talked about. And I also published the, the Ukraine Pulse, which is very much focused on the, the debates that are happening in Ukraine society, uh, you know, among experts, pundits, uh, among activists on, on social network, to try to sort of give the sense of what is, what is being talked about in Ukraine at that time, which can be fairly different from the, the conversation that people 
in the West have about Ukraine. So try to give a more Ukrainian-centric perspective. To that effect, just one editorializing for a second. Highly recommend if you're curious about these sorts of issues, read Ukrainian media. They have really fantastic, truly fantastic journalism, uh, really good investigative work. But turning to this piece you wrote about Ukraine's future and what writers had to say about it. What did what did you find? What were some of the viewpoints about what happens next? Yeah, I, I found, first, I found a lot of very different viewpoints, which, you know, you could say is uh, is fairly, obviously, that they're going to be very different views of what, what will happen after after the end of the war. But I think also that reflects the, the uncertainty about what after the war even means. You know, there is a not unsignificantly small camp in Ukraine that has this idea of an eternal war with Russia, with this idea that war with Russia will never end until Russia itself has dislocated, until Russia itself is no more. Which I don't know. I don't know that it's the, the view held by the majority of the population, but but it is it is clearly a, a popular view. Not everyone has that view. You also have those who think that the war will end at some point. But here there is also this idea that really a lot for the future of, the, of Ukraine will depend on how it ends, of course. That, you know, victory will put Ukraine very strongly in the camp of the West and will allow Ukraine to start rebuilding in earnest and, you know, kind of start, start a new project. But that anything less than complete victory, even if it's not defeat will have, you know, big implication. And one thing that I found particularly interesting was this op-ed talking about the, the potential of increasing resent- resentment against the West if, if Ukraine does not, you know, win a total victory. There could be this situation where I think he compared it to potentially Hungary or Turkey, so the more authoritarian turn, which again serves to highlight the uncertainty and how how important the result of the war is for, for the future of Ukraine. And another fear that I think is pretty clearly highlighted in those, uh, in those talks about the future of Ukraine is the, the demographic issue, the fact that a lot of people have left and really the, the kind of big question of when the war ends, will people come back to Ukraine or will even more people leave as you know, restriction. Uh, so for right now, men of fighting age are not, are, not allowed, are not allowed to leave the country. If those restrictions are, are lifted, are they going to leave as well? That's also a big, big worry. And so there are discussion on how, how that could be avoided. And again, that would entirely depend on what the situation is in Ukraine at the end of the war. So yeah, it's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, at least when I, when I did this, uh, this issue of Ukraine Pulse, you know, most most of those uh, op-eds I found sort of reflected more anxiety. I'm sure there are also more optimistic views, but I think the idea of certainty is really the, the common the common viewpoint. And our word of the day, Fabrice. Thank you so much for joining. That was a really nuanced update. And again, I'm including a link to both of Fabrice's newsletters in the episode description. If you want to follow this, sign up. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Fabrice and to you, listener, for joining. So, what do you think? What is the future of Ukrainian politics? How might the end of the war affect that? Let us know on the website formerly known as Twitter at the handle at Bear Market Brief. The Bear Market Brief podcast is brought to you by the Foreign Policy Research Institute. That's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based here in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and on many others, visit our website, fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.